0: On this special okay. episode of Movie Geeks United, we welcome Australian-based film historian Lee Gambin. Mr. Gambin has contributed audio commentaries to the releases of many classic and cult films on Blu-ray. He is also the author of quite a number of very well-researched and well-written books, including Nothing Wrong Here, The Making of Cujo… We Can Be Who We Are, musicals of the 70s and Massacred by Mother Nature, which covers the cycle of eco-horror films of the 70s and 80s. In addition, the prolific Mr. Gambon has served as a contributor to such well-respected publications as uh, Diabolique, Fangoria, and was a 2018 nominee for the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. He also serves as a frequent film festival curator. It is a pleasure to welcome you to our show.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. What a what a um, lengthy intro. That's great. I didn't realize <laughs> we well, did it, it so much. It. You're great.
0: You're great. <laughs> thank I you. Just... Yes, we are a tremendous fan of the work you're doing. Your name always pops up when we do our monthly Blu-ray segment, which we do. I'm the home entertainment correspondent, of course, and so I I do all the re- you know, go through all the Blu-rays each month and and review as many of them as time will allow. And and your name always pops up. And I and I listen to your commentaries as well. And uh, I think the first one that that caught our attention was the Night of the Lepus commentary, <laughs> mm. <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, which is somewhat of an infamous film among uh, and, and some of us have a real fondness for it, like myself. Mm, but um, yeah, oh, that list- was
1: that was a great pleasure to do that film because I felt like. Um, it constantly just gets sort of a, a very basic rap, um, and it's always quite negative, and it's always in the sort of, you know, quote-unquote, so bad, it's good vein, which I really detest. I hate that. I think it's quite lazy, that sort of, that kind of thinking. Um, and people kind of poo-poo it as a silly film, so I wanted to sort of champion it as much as I could, you know, with that commentary into talk about claxton and how it's kind of like um you know it is a western and um you know his work as a director and also all the people involved with it um and also lucky to have um conversations with one of the last surviving people who would talk about the movie who was jack N young who was a amazing amazing um stuntman from a whole bunch of films um primarily through the uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And then by the 70s, when Leapers came about, he was a scout hunter, like loc- a uh, location scout hunter, and he had these great stories, and he just passed away recently. So it's good to sort of champion these people who are part of film history and have them embedded in the commentary. But, yeah, that was a pleasure to do, an absolute pleasure, and Scream Factory did a really beautiful um, job with that release.
0: Yes, they absolutely did. I, I was so... Glad, so pleased when they got control of some of the Warner Brothers properties, which is where the Night of the Lepus came into play. Because um, there's so many, there, there's a, I feel like that's just a, a a real well of treasures there that that they absolutely. can absolutely. Well, into. one that I would
1: love them to do is um, the Pack. I wish they could get the rights to the Pack <laughs> um, because I feel like that film um, from 1977 needs a nice, beautiful, deluxe release, and I'm more than happy. <laughs> to rant about that movie on, on the commentary because it's one of my favourites. But, yeah, there's a ho- you're absolutely right. There's so much um, from the Warner archives that, you know, needs not just a bare-bones release. You know, it's always lovely to see things come out on Blu-ray. Like, I just saw that Bad Ronald, the made-for-TV film, um, with Scott Jacoby's just come out on Blu-ray. That's great, but it needs stuff. It needs extras because I think these films need that because they deserve them. You know, they're all so wonderful
0: they do, and it, and it serves as a lasting record for future generations because we live in an era when a lot of these, these talents are, unfortunately, uh, the father time is taking care of that for us, unfortunately, mm. and a lot of them are passing away. And it's up to people like yourself to keep, that, keep, keep the torch burning, so to speak, to remind people that the, of these movies in a time when things were a lot different. Than they are in this yep. climate that we live in, which is rather sad, <laughs> yeah I've always
1: been a big fan
0: of um,
1: you know jam packing um a blu ray or d v d release with as much as you can get because it's always as a as a film critic and historian and stuff I've always really really championed the idea of giving a voice to anyone who worked on the film because I feel like. There's a lot of writers out there who, um, you know, have ama- they're amazing, they're incredible um, analytical minds and they're great with critical writing and critical thought and they're really good at what they do. However, they never sort of tend to talk to the people involved. And if you're talking about films from the 70s and 80s, which is a primary, you know, big market in Blu-ray and DVD sales, um, that most likely people are still alive. <laughs> so it's good to reach out to those people and talk to them as well. And also, on top of that these companies uh you know pitch to the companies to get you know a camera on these people and get them videotaped for extras because i think everyone involved with the film in question should be involved if they want to and if they can be um and then it's up to historians and critics and film production companies to get those people on there because it, it, i guess dvd supplements are kind of like um, a new doc. Uh, well, they are that, not new. It's been around for a while now um, since DVD started. But that kind of documentation of film history, um, and it's sort of taken the place of a lot of things like you know articles and print media and um, uh, you know full feature documentary making etc. Or sort of adds to that. Um, not to say that those things don 't exist anymore, of course they do, and thank God they do because I eat that all up as well and have worked on all that stuff as well and it 's very vitally important, but it is you know an instant um, testament to a film 's history um, as far as you know that that 's concerned so it 's really important, and I think it's it 's always good that people get enthused by d v d supplement and blu ray supplements because God, it's it's vital. It's really important. I remember when DVDs started and you'd get documentaries and vintage documentaries and I'd be just like sitting there going, this is incredible, like this is so good. Like, cause, you know, you never get this stuff before on video. I mean, you did for a little while when VHS was sort of panning out, that tack on like, you know, a documentary featurette right at the end of the film um but you know that big explosion when dvd's happened where you'd have you know all the trailers and all the interviews and audio commentaries and uh documentaries and little mini featurettes and vintage stuff it, it's, just, it's 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 a treasure it's incredible stuff
0: yes it is i i was a laser disc collector back in the day i'm i'm old enough to have lived through that and so i that was my first exposure to a lot of these you know, to to getting a, a peek behind the scenes at the process, the actual technical processes of of getting these films put together. And so that that was almost like a a film school to me. And I've heard some directors who said the same thing. I think Paul Thomas Anderson famously said that he learned as much about making films from the audio commentaries on the laser discs as he did uh from any of the film school courses that he took so I, uh, like you said it's it's very important and uh, that's that's why I'm so glad that, that people like yourself are are keeping that going and um and and some of these commentaries for me uh I can just listen to them without the movie I can just listen to them as uh, as if I were listening to a podcast they're 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 fun to listen to separately uh you can do that as well and so that's it's just you know the, there's a lot of value there in a lot of ways but um but anyway and I'm glad you mentioned the pack by the way that I'm a fan of that one as well and uh so I'm hoping maybe somebody will listen to us and try to pursue those rights. <laughs> yes, absolutely. absolutely. I would love to see it too. So I'm going to get uh I'm gonna, I'm going to go back and uh, just get you to tell us a little bit about how you got started and uh in doing all this and, and how how it kind of your journey from there to here.
1: So, so, so um, how I started audio commentaries?
0: Yeah, well, the commentaries and the just uh, writing the books and just, uh, you know, I guess... All right, well, that's, a, that's a long the...
1: one, but I'll, I'll try and do it as quickly as possible. So <laughs> okay. I started, I've, I've written forever since I was a kid. I remember just sort of, you know, one of my first earliest memories as a child, and I think mm-hmm. I've still got them in a box, was writing cast lists. I was obsessed with watching end credits and writing cast lists over and over again as a kid you know, just a weird kid who, like a ghoul watching movies all the time. Um, But then in my teens, I'd start writing a lot and, uh, you know, writing about my favourite horror films, mostly, primarily. And then, professionally, I sort of started after doing a bunch of zines and stuff um, with Fangoria. So that sort of kicked off um, around probably the very early 2000s. Uh, And it started with um, online, then I obviously got into the mag. Which was terrific. Uh, and Chris Alexander, uh, when he took over in the mid 2000s, he um, had me on board, which was so good. So I owe a lot to him. He's incredible. Such so a good. Um an incredible editor and an amazing guy. Anyway, so I started that and then from Fangoria it just sort of grew, it blossomed and went on and so books started to I started to write books, I thought okay I'm going to just do this. I've always loved ecological horror, it's very underwritten about, no one really discusses it, it's one of those subgenres of horror that no one talks about and it's one of my favourites because, you know, I'm a big fan of animal attack films and animals in general and just that, that long history of them um, and there's so many and people kind of Get that there are so many, so I decided to do a book on that, and it grew from there. And then, you know, um, started my own screenings um, with a film group. Um, okay. And then went to school, went to uni, uh, but dropped out because it wasn't doing anything for me. So I just thought, nah, nah, I'm going to just do this on my own and become a self-made man, (laughs) I guess. So then from then on, I just did more books. I did a whole monograph on Cujo, as you mentioned. Um, I just completed one on Christine. Uh, I've done one on The Howling, which comes out this year very soon. Um, And then also just constant writing. So then also doing writing for... Different magazines, so there were, you know, Scream magazine, um, Diabolique, which I became a co-editor on, um, along with Kat Allinger, who's another incredible, uh, amazing person, who's an incredible writer and film historian and critic, uh, much like Chris. And then a lot of things came about with DVD and Blu-ray releases as well. Uh, where I do liner notes and essays. Plus, I didn't want to sort of um, just restrict myself to horror because I feel like a real film person loves everything, you know, that, and that I really do believe in that. I think I get a really uh, a bit sort of frustrated with the people who call themselves uh, movie fans that only do like one kind of movie, uh, and that goes with um, genre fans as well. Like, oh, you know, people who sort of claim that they're a horror fan but they only like one kind of horror movie that really irritates me, that irks me. So with my writing, I tend to just go big scopes or write on musicals and westerns and noir and pre-code and golden age and made for TV stuff and, you know, uh, melodramas, etc. So all that sort of started to build and then I wrote this massive 800-page tome on 70s movie musicals where I cover everything from 1970 to 1980. Although, in retrospect, I missed out on like eight titles, which killed me. (laughs) But that's, you know, uh, that's the... Um, So then there's all all that stuff was happening. And then audio commentaries, I feel, came about primarily thanks to the wonderful um, Heather Buckley, um, who was working at Kino Lorba, and she asked me to send a CV. And then the equally brilliant Frank Tarzi from Kino Lorba hired me and got me the first job, which was, I believe, the reincarnation of Peter Proud, um, which is a fantastic film with the late, great Margot Kidder. And that just sort of went from there. And then also, Bill Ackerman, um, another brilliant person, there's such a good, there is actually a wonderful community out there of great people who do great work. And he does this incredibly good podcast called Supporting Characters, which I'm sure you're familiar with, where I did this really long conversation (laughs) where I just kept talking. and And that got out there, and people seemed to enjoy it, which was nice Um, and then also one of the first commentaries I actually ever did was Orca for Umbrella um, here in Australia and that was just a joy because I think that film is so under it's underrated I feel and I feel that word is thrown around quite a lot but I feel it is underrated because it gets roped into being a Jaws ripoff and it's much more than that It it most certainly is much more than that um, and then it sort of moved from there. So now I, don't, I think I've, I've lost count as to how many audio commentaries I have under my belt. But um, I've done joint ones as well with excellent people like um, uh, Alexandra Nicholas, who's another wonderful writer and good friend of mine. And she and I did Carrie together for Arrow. And Arrow have been amazing. And Kino Lorba have just been incredible and um, Umbrella's been great, and also Scream Factory and Scorpion releasing. All these companies are terrific. And I've also done two commentaries with other people, one of them being uh, with Emma Westwood, another wonderful writer from here, and a good friend who's just got a book coming out on the fly, um, uh, David Cronenberg's The Fly, and also with Eloise Ross, who runs the Melbourne Cinematech here, who does a lot of great programming. Just currently she's doing a whole season of Idol films. So look, there's a lot of great people and that's how I sort of, yeah, built my the trajectory of my career, just going from one thing to another. Um, and while this is all, this is all happening, also doing Cinemaniacs, which is my, the film group um, I'm in, which is now in the sixth year, um, which is thematic programming every year and um, lots of lectures, lots of talks. I've done lots of talks at unis and um, talks from via this, this uh, group, Cinemaniacs, from everything from, you know, Um, talking about psychotic fans in movies to dogs in movies to you know, the history of West Side Story like it's just this ever growing thing and we curate them and have a lot of different guests from from town and have video intros from people who worked on the film that we screen, so it's it's, it's this big sort of thing that I've been doing, this big sort of, you know long, you know endless sort of uh, work, someone asked if I ever sleep and to be quite honest not really, (laughs) like (laughs) <laughs> um, because i just gonna work around the clock, and and it's all worth it. Because I hope I'm doing something, you know, valuable, and people enjoy.
0: Oh yeah, you're incredibly prolific. I keep up with what you're doing, and it's it's just amazing. It's amazing. It makes me feel lazy. It really does. And um, but it's good work. It's qu- Your work is is quality, and and I love your approach to the commentaries and the books because you give a great mixture of the actual nuts and bolts the technical stuff uh, as far as how these films were actually put together and you mix that in with your own analysis in a way that's really unique that people oh, have uh, yeah it's it's really good it's it's a good it's a good blend almost a perfect blend of of those two and um that's that's the thing i like that that sets you apart from others that i I've, I've enjoyed with your your writing and and your commentaries and, um, like you said, it's, it's fortunate that you're able to get some of these people who were involved on board. I haven't picked up that Orca yet. I'm with you totally on Orca. I feel like it's, it's an underrated film, too. I love the score, the Morricone score, which mm-hmm. I I occasionally will just go for a long walk and put that on. So I have been mm-hmm. a huge, huge Beautiful. fan of that for years. Yes, absolutely. And love that film too. I, I first saw it on network television in the states here, and uh, when I was about six or seven. So I definitely want to pick that up. I, I've always been a fan of it as well. And um, so, so yes, uh, an, an umbrella is putting out some of those titles. I notice that we're not getting here in the states, like on Blu-ray, like Silver Bullet is another one I've noticed. They put out recently, and there's there's a few others that so and and they do those wonderful collections of trailers, which I'm pleased with too. So so you you guys have a great company there in Australia with Umbrella. And hats off to them for what they do. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah. They release of Silver Bullet and Cat's Eye are incredible. I produced featurettes on those. Actually, I did a featurette on Cat's Eye, which was um, uh, Robert Hayes talks about Cat's Eye. Um, he's inter- interviewed by a friend, Camilla Jackson, who's up in L.A. From, she's from Australia, but she used to do a lot of the stuff for Cinemaniacs. But um, also I produced a feature it with Teresa Ann Miller, who was the animal trainer. She's the daughter of Carl Lewis Miller, who was a famous animal trainer on Cujo and The Pack and um, Beethoven and um, Doberman Gang and um, Wanton-Ton, the dog that saved Hollywood and all these films. And mm-hmm. uh, she was great. So she talked about that, her, that being her first job with her dad, trading the cat on that film. Um, and also for Silver Bullet, I, Bullet, I produced uh, the Martha De Laurentiis in uh, interview as well. But yeah, Umbrella were doing great stuff. They did a lot of the Australian horror stuff as well, which I was involved with um, uh, Razorback and Long Weekend and Dark Age. And I did this panel discussion with um, uh, Al- Alexandra and Emma, who I mentioned before, and Sally Christie, who's also on the Cinemaniacs board and another writer and another audio commentator. She and Emma did a commentary on... Oh God! What's it called? Light sleeper recently as well. The Susan Sarandon film. But yeah, no, they they do good jobs. They do a great job. (laughs) Yeah, and there's a push for Australian, you know, companies to keep up with the American and UK markets to make sure there's all these great featurettes. And and there are. They're they're, they're out there. They're getting up there. There's some good stuff happening. And those trailer, the Delirium one. Yeah, they're terrific. Excellent stuff.
0: They sure are. yeah, Yeah. I have the first two volumes. I haven't picked up the third one yet, but the first two were just... The the trailers are, in, so, in the cases of some of those films, are actually better than the films themselves, and they do a great job. And they're just... And the quality... I know people tend to go on YouTube and look up these trailers, but I can't recommend people... I can't recommend enough for people to pick these up because the quality they're re- remastering, they've done these things, look gorgeous. They mm, look
1: good. Yeah, absolutely.
0: They really do. So it's 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 uh the drive-in delirium that's what that's the name of the, the series they're doing And i hope they keep yep. doing them but um but but anyway i wanted to see which writers have influenced you that was another question i have uh as far as like film criticism and things of that nature mm-hmm. we all have our favorites and i was going to see what yours were that
1: yeah i mean i read a bunch of stuff there was, there's like one of my sort of most formative sort of um, books, I guess, or influential was a collection of essays, um, uh, American Nightmares, or yeah, American Nightmares: Essays in the Modern Horror Film. So it's got essays on you know, Toby Hooper's Funhouse and The Howling, and uh, what else is in there? Um, there was one on um, obviously on Halloween, etc. But that was a collection of essays: Vivian Sobchack and Robin Wood, and all those people who I really liked um Molly Haskell is a big influence I love her books uh, her work on the the treatment uh, rape from reverence to rape the treatment of women in film um Donald Bogle I loved his book on um black representation in film Vito Russo with the word closet. um uh, there's a whole bunch uh, as far as horror stuff god there's so many um uh, but yeah I reckon those sort of pinnacle books about um, representation in film. I was much more interested in than, um, uh, monographs or things focused on one thing, which is, is ironic because I've done, you know, three monographs, but I just always really gravitated to overviews on um, one practice in film or one kind of um, thematic connection in film. So, for instance, the Bogle book, um, uh, which is all that black representation in film, I just ate that up as a teenager and, and you know, young adult because I was like, this is just incredible um, because he goes through this whole long history up until about the 60s. I know there's a revised edition, but that whole thing was just so beautifully um, rich and in his interpretation and his analysis, so I just really ate it up. And all those people did that. And I think, you know, Pauline Cale, I mean, you know, people go on about her, but I really love her writing. I mean, yes, she hated a lot of things, <laughs> but I really liked her writing. She was, you know, that sort of dry, sort of um, yeah, that kind of really kind of uh, almost cold kind of writing. But in a sense, it was also really, really um, loving in the way it sort of um, I don't know uh, pick pick that film. Uh, you know, really critically picked at it. Um, but yeah, all those people were great. I mean, I love things like you know all the animation historians like. Jerry Beck, I think his work is incredible. Um, uh, modern, write, like contemporary writers, people like Richard Barrios, who's an amazing writer on musicals. Uh, there's there's a lot of people like there's a lot of people from you know reading as a kid and a teenager. And as a teenager, yeah, film criticism was something that I just sort of gravitated to and read a lot of um, Harry Benshoff's book Monsters of the Closet in my 20s. That was pretty amazing to read and. There was a whole bunch of stuff. So, yeah, it was endless and um, exciting. There was a great book I remember being obsessed with, which I have on my shelf somewhere, um, Running Time. I can't remember the woman that wrote it, but she's amazing. She wrote basically a book about the Cold War um, in response to melodramas, and it was terrific. I remember reading up on, you know, obvious Cold War melodramas like The the Manchurian Candidate, but then on the same page, you'd have something all about tea and sympathy, the Vincent Minnelli film, and... Um, And it was just this incredible way that she knew how to rope in as many titles to fit under this one umbrella. And I really sort of appreciate that because I've always felt that I like to, in my own writing, I like to um, find thematic connections between the most, you know, diverse range of film. And I think that's really important because it makes people think and it gets people to watch films, hopefully. So, you know, you can watch, uh, you know, um, Meet Me in St. Louis and then watch Halloween and then see really nice connective tissue there Um, as far as aesthetic or what John Carpenter was tributing or what um, Deborah Hill was tributing or that whole, or the aesthetic, uh, like I said, the aesthetic, like the Halloween sequence in Meet Me in St. Louis compared to the treatment of suburbia in Carpenter's film. So, that kind of stuff, whether it be, you know, visual stylings or um, story. Um, So I like that kind of stuff. And a lot of writers from that period, um, you know, me reading those books, did the same thing. Also documentaries, the film documentaries. And the big thing in the 90s, I feel, um, being a teenager, um, was the documentary film. uh, Documentaries about film. Um, So you get Mm -hmm. things like Visions of Light, which is such a beautiful piece all about cinematography and the bronze screen about Latino um, imagery and the Cellular Closet again. All these great documentaries came out in that period, the Scorsese one, The Journey Through American Film. All these things that came out um, during that decade and then into the early 2000s that really were, you know, such tributes, beautiful, well-mounted tributes to film. And I ate them up as well. So they were really influential as well.
0: Yeah, well, those are that's a that's a good range of influences. Yeah, I, I agree with all of those. And uh, yeah, like, like I said, we we all have critics that speak to us personally. And and the thing is that a lot of people don't realize about film criticism is that even if you if a critic disagrees with your opinion, you can learn something by reading a, a good film criticism. You can actually learn something from somebody who even disagrees with you. And I think that's missed by a lot of people. <laughs> unfortunately, and they just, you know, people now in the, I think, in in the world we're living in, people just want to gravitate towards people who agree with them, which is um, yeah. not necessarily the way to go, I don't think. <laughs> you can, well, you can't mean, really learn that way. Yeah,
1: it's funny you mention that I've just recently been talking about um, Carl Clover's, um, you know, majorly influential book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, and I have major issues with that because I feel like a lot of the stuff she argues, isn't entirely true. But that's okay. That's the point. You know, the whole idea of the virginal heroine. Um, Yeah, that happens in a few slasher movies, but not all of them. A lot of them have boyfriends. A lot of them have active sex lives and they are the final girl, blah, blah, blah. But that's okay, you know. uh, It's good to argue those points. Also, I feel like a lot of the films she talks about are films that she doesn't really... Um, so she holds at arm's length in the writing um, and I feel like that, that kind of book it's not Pauline Cale it's a book dedicated to, to you know quote unquote modern horror so 70s and 80s well, in that regard but if you're going to do a book on that you really should love the films you're talking about and I feel like Clover's book doesn't have that kind of warmth that I was looking for when I first mm-hmm. read Men, Women and Chainsaws, and I came to that book quite late. Um, I remember when it sort of emerged, and everyone was all going on about it, but I came to it like late, late, and felt a bit cold from it, especially because I'm so um, you know passionate and you know about flasher movies, um, and also gender in, in horror. Um, I have a lot of issues with what she writes about, because I've always fe- felt that horror is so female, it's so feminine, it's a very feminine genre. Um, you know, the action film and the western are very masculine, and then you have horror films which are very feminine. They're not 90% of the time female-centric, and the female is the protagonist. So I've always sort of, um, you know, run into conversations about that in regard to, you know, representation of women, blah, 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 and especially in slasher films. And I've always sort of said, no, slasher films are the four, run the four in feminist film because it's always about girls, teenage girls. Um, so, yeah, that kind of thing. And also her, her view on spectatorship of slasher movies and blah, blah, blah. So, yes, you're absolutely right. It's good to argue. <laughs> it's good to have different conflicting opinions on, on film and interpretive um, responses to film.
0: Yeah, this is true. Yeah. Every time I, I watch a film from the 70s, I have all the collected works of Pauline Kael in my library, and I'll watch a film from the 70s that I may not have seen, and I'll always go and look after I've seen the film and see if it's something she actually reviewed, because I want to know what she thought, whether I agreed with her or not, and and she's just one example I'm citing. There are others, but uh, yeah, I, I feel like I learn a lot by yeah, by I, remember her,
1: I remember her um, really pissing me off when she wrote on The Exorcist, and she said that she didn't feel Ellen Burstyn's, um, you know, anguish. And I was like, what are you talking about? That's one of the <laughs> most perfect, perfect performances ever. And then on top of that, though, she'd um, surprise you and really, really champion something like Splash, which I love. I think it's a great film. Yeah. But uh, you know, that writing on Splash—if you ever revisit it—the um, you know, the Ron Howard mermaid film. Mm-hmm. She just goes on about how much she loves it. I was like, okay. So there's these kind of weird sort of things with her writing where she goes in and out. And also the controversial stuff I really like, you know, how she was um, supposedly uh, homophobic because she talks about the the children's hour and and, and also a film called A Taste of Honey. And there was something, uh, I'm going to misquote her here, but in in regards to the children's hour, she said something like, you know, we're supposed to feel sorry for Shirley MacLaine and Audrey Hepburn because they can't do anything with each other. But isn't that the point? Lesbians can't do anything with each other. That kind of thing, where it's like, whoa, what the... And then also the um, taste of honey, she said something like, you know, um, uh, now the social workers of the world have a new unfortunate... to." Clasp at their bosom like the Negroes and Jews before them. Now the, the you know the gay men have their go or something. So all these kind of really kind of cutting remarks that she did, and that, that that's who she was. But then I also had really um, at first hand some great stories about her where she was really really supportive um, mm-hmm. of people and their careers. Because Piper Laurie told me that she actually said said, said um, do carry, and you should do carry. She was really good friends with Piper's husband, who was another film critic. And when Carrie came along, when De Palmer, wanted Piper for Carrie, Pauline said, "Oh, you've got to do this." And then in her review of her, um, she totally captured Piper's performance correctly. She called, i think from memory—she called her like um, breathy and sexy. She made this Haragen from this novel, this you know nasty, you know uh, monstrous woman, this kind of vulnerable, sexy almost woman. This woman with all this pent up. Um, you know sexuality and it's true it's in the performance Piper Laurie's performance of Margie isn't just one dimensional harpy she's friggin complicated so I like that about her as well Pauline it's quite interesting and I just watched a documentary actually about Clint Eastwood um, and she talks about you know changing faces of masculinity and he's obviously one of the main you know uh, points of reference in the, throughout the seventies, and her input in that, her talking head segment in that is really cool. She's she's in and out, and it's pretty fun to watch.
0: Oh, great! And also, she kissed oh, off,
1: great. she pissed off Jerry Lewis, and that's always fun.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is very very true. Well, think, the thing about her was that she could really take you by surprise. I remember the 76 King Kong she was a champion of that which was pretty mm. much lambasted by most critics
1: <laughs> but she yeah, was and a she, champion. she compared she compared um Jessica Lange to um Carol Lombard mm. yeah
0: <laughs> this is true and that was a that was a film that I had a, a great fondness for uh it was everybody has that pivotal film that really turns them into a film buff, or, or t- turns it on for them, and that was the one that ignited the passion for me. I had uh, Towering Inferno, had, which is ironically directed by the same guy, of course John Gillerman, but that had made quite a, an impression on me, but then when I saw King Kong, it just there was something in, in me that clicked, and I haven't been the same since. So oh, it's, it's nice deserve,
1: to see. It's Yeah. <laughs> one of my favorite moments of that movie, it comes from John Barry's score, um, and it's when Kong actually puts um, dwan down onto the ground and she thinks she's free and she just runs and then he sweeps her back up and that music there is just too much it's just perfect it's beautiful oh
0: yes absolutely i was uh i was lucky enough to attend john gillerman's uh memorial service when he passed his i had written absolutely. his widow yeah i wrote his widow a nice note uh telling her what those two films had meant to me and she um, was really touched by it, and she invited me to his memorial service, and I, so I, w- I was lucky enough to to be able to actually pay my respects in a in a personal way. So it was it was nice. That's so good. Yeah. <laughs> That's so lovely. That's excellent. Yeah, it was it was it was great. So um, yeah, because I mean, you never know who you're influencing. I guess that goes to prove that you can you can be turning out work that makes a big difference in somebody's life, and you don't even know it, but. um Anyway, well, I'll move on here that I was just curious about the process of research that you go into when you're doing commentaries on these uh, discs on these blu rays these titles. Yeah. I'm curious about what you how yeah, that works absolutely so
1: I'll be watching i'll I'll get assigned the film um and then I will um watch it over and over again, and then what I do is I do a scene breakdown, so I'll list every single scene. And then um, upon maybe the second or third viewing, I'll make notes, loads of notes. So I'll be watching it and then going through each scene and just basically doing this kind of stream of consciousness note-taking and then come back to it and refine it. Um, and then most of that would be all about my analysis and my critical insight into the film. And then after that, I would go into research mode. So I would be, you know, digging out old articles, uh, you know, um, reviews, Um, production history, if the film has people that are still with us, I will contact them. I'll branch out and see if I can talk to them. Not all the time that's going to be a success, or sometimes it might be late. Um, For instance, um, I'm not going to say the title, but I did, because it has been announced, but the features haven't been announced. I'm probably just out of it now. But basically (laughs) there was a film that I did where I knew not really primarily no one was really alive right but there was someone connected to someone who was very close to this person I thought on a whim okay I might ask them if they've got info and they did they gave me this fantastic like two paragraphs of info which was which was amazing but I had recorded it and submitted it like two days earlier so that was a nuisance But that's okay. They're always forgiven. They're amazing. Um, But that kind of thing, so reaching out to people uh, and then just going diving into sort of different research modes. So, you know, scouring um, for facts and um, trivia and production history and then researching people involved. So, you know, if if I'm doing a Selznick film, I want to find out about what Selznick was sort of doing during the period of that film and then reeling off that. Then also finding thematic connections. So if I do something like... You know, the reincarnation of Peter Proud, I'm going to do like about five, six, seven minutes on films about reincarnation. And that sort of, you know, lets you have this kind of nice run where you can kind of do a free association thing. And, you know, some people have issues with that. I've read a review of one of my pieces from someone going, oh, you know, lots of tangents and. Uh, you know free association blah 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 and it's like well you know i'm not going to sit there and talk about what's happening like on the scene like you know now joel mcrae gets his gun and now he's walking to the left of frame and now like who the fuck wants to listen to that so you want to sort of beef it up with everything you can possibly do and i hope i do a good enough job but um uh most responses has been have been positive thank god But, yeah, this whole idea of um, research is basically... um, It's sort of a tentacle thing. It reaches out to every sort of aspect of, you know, uh, like you said earlier, the idea of um, nuts-and-bolts filmmaking to critical analysis and finding um, the in-between there and running with it. Um, But, yeah, basically everything is on paper. Um, But then I'll, yes, go on tangent. So if I get... You know, if I'm doing country with Jessica Lang, yeah, you're going to hear a lot about King Kong. (laughs) Because, you know, a film like that, which is so slow moving and not much sort of happens for a long while mm-hmm. besides all this incredible, you know, performance stuff, which is beautiful to watch because mm-hmm. Sam Shepard and Lang are amazing. But as far as action sequences, the things that happen in the movie, not much happens. So you can riff on King Kong for, you know, a couple of minutes. Why not? Um, so it's that whole thing and making always making it sort of connected and keeping in mind that it has to not actually be a tangent and does come back which is quite offensive when someone says i run on tangents i never i mean i do but i always bring it back like i always do a full circle on it and i hope i do anyway but yeah that that thing is how i that's that's a summary i guess of how i research something
0: oh i was just curious yeah that's great that's it's good to know cuz uh, i uh... Was you know I'm always curious about how how people go about that and um and like I said you do such a thorough job on on the commentary tracks that you've been. and I, I'm glad you brought up Peter Proud I, I wanted to say I did enjoy your work there very much and I do think that's an underrated film as well I I had had gotten that back in May and just watched it literally a couple of weeks after Margot's passing so it was kind of Bittersweet mm. watching it there, and I had never seen the film because it had been so notoriously hard to find in the states. I mean, there were bootleg copies that you could get, of course, on YouTube and and all that. But I was holding out for holding out the hope that somebody would do it justice, and they finally did. So I was
1: yeah, Ken Loeb, but just once again, they're amazing. Kenilaba, I can't stress how wonderful Ken Lorber are, and also how important their work is. Like it's vitally mm-hmm. important. It's so important, but yeah, on, on Peter Prowl, it was pretty sad. I um, had interviewed Margot Kidder years back. Um, uh, I remember the morning actually very distinctly. It was the same morning I found out the first book, the Eco Horror book, was up for a Rondo. Uh, after I hung up from her, um, I found that out. I was like, "Oh, that's actually you know a bit of a momentous few, a day." <laughs> anyway, she uh, and I kept in touch, but then. Um, when I got the gig for Peter Pratt I was like "Oh, I'll reach out to her and see if she's got anything to add to it going because I know she didn't want to do any interviews for it um, and I know she's not really talking about her film work anymore she's more sort of focused on her activism which is fine mm-hmm. um, but I did on a whim ask her and she said I appreciate it but no thanks and I thought okay that's fine so yeah it was pretty sad and then I think I recorded it um, after she Died maybe, or maybe before. I can't remember, but yeah, it was pretty sad. Pretty sad moment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's good that you at least made the effort to reach out to her because, yeah, I don't recall her ever talking about it. Like you said, that's a good point, and I didn't think about that. But but Yakino yeah, is doing some terrific work. I uh, recently they have issued some great television films. You know, Night Stalker and Night Strangler really? and Trilogy of Terror is on the way. So and of course they did the day after, which you contributed a con- commentary to as well. It's another great television film. That, so I'm I'm so glad they're they're doing the television work as well as the theatrical.
1: Absolutely. Stuff. Have you got Amanda Reyes' book?
0: I do. Yes, I do, and it is very very good. Yeah, yeah I was so glad yeah. she did that because uh, the only TV movie book that I knew of was the Alvin Merrill book from the. It was the I forget what it was TV movies 1964 to 99 or something like that. It was an encyclopedia of made for television films, which is quite good in its own right. Although a lot has has come and gone since since then. But uh, and Mr. Merrill was one of the team who worked on those uh, the Leonard Maltin movie book that used to come out each year. So he yeah that's
1: right. Oh, I love that book as well, and I love the I love the Maltin books as well. But yeah, yeah the Amanda's book. Yeah. She's terrific, and she's doing commentaries now, which is excellent. Um, And she um, did the Someone's Watching Me commentary, Mm -hmm. which is so... Yeah, she's terrific. She's another one. I was really happy to um, contribute to her book. Uh, And someone who, once again, loves, loves um, films and just such a big, big, big fan and scholar on Made for TV Films, which I think is just so so cool and so brilliant it was great The other, a few years ago she was down um, with another um, you know legend of the film world film writing world Kayla Janice who does a spectacular optical and wrote House of Psychotic Women then mm-hmm. uh, a film programmer and she was down here in Melbourne programming Monster Fest um, the film festival that happens every year here uh, and Amanda was down and we were on a panel with John Harrison who was another film historian and writer here, who's working on a wonderful book, which looks, which sounds, it's going to be amazing, all about Marjo Gortner. So that's going to be incredible as well, out through Bear Manor Media. And I have to give a shout out to them. I think Ben Omart at Bear Manor Media, Media is a legend. Like he, there's a reason why Leonard Moulton, you know, really, really thoroughly gives the thumbs up to his books, because it's incredible. Like, you know, the the specific, stuff that he sort of releases, you know, a book on aviation and film, um, a book on, you know, Mel Blanc, a book on uh, Doris Day filmography, uh, you know, uh, Errol Flynn book, you know, I mean, they're obviously big things, but then there's, you know, really specific stuff like, you know, I don't know, a book on, you know, Hollywood glamour of the 40s, like 1941 to 44, you know, (laughs) Like that kind of thing, which is really cool and really important. And I think a company like his really needs to sort of be looked upon as another amazing asset to film history because everyone's given an opportunity, you know, people are given opportunities to write about whatever they want, and they're all good quality books. Um, and also, you know, monographs on film. You know, it's amazing that Jaws 2 has an entire book dedicated to it.
0: You know, I know. It's,
1: it's, a, it's a great thing, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a good book too. By the way, it's very interesting. Yeah, because that's a that's a very very fascinating story. Just talking to Joe Alves uh, recently, I was I would I had totally forgotten that that production was almost shut. Well, it was shut down. They had completely were going to scrap it entirely until he talked them into bringing you know to resurrecting it. He recommended that they bring in his friend Jeanette Swart, who directed it, of course, and who whom mm. he had known from working with it on you know, Night Gallery, and I totally forgot that they that they went through all that turmoil, that it, that it came so close to never happening, or not getting finished, rather. So yeah, that's yeah, that's a good one. I
1: love Jeanette Swart. I love his film Bug um, for William oh, Castle. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's another one I saw on <laughs> network television as a kid that made a a huge in, impression on me as well, and very... Yeah, same very... as me. It was funny, because <laughs> yeah. I remember
1: it, it screened after Greece. Um, Channel 7 here in Australia in the 80s had a, the Monopoly on Paramount films, um, and I remember Greece aired on TV, and then right after it was Bug. So that's how good programming in the 80s in television in Australia was. <laughs> you jumped from, you know, John Travolta to Bradford Dillman. You know, it was really cool. <laughs>
0: That's quite a double feature.
1: That really, yeah.
0: really is. You can't get more di- diverse. I'm sure we can find
1: some kind of connection there.
0: <laughs> probably so. There's probably one if we look hard enough. This is this is very yeah. true. So uh, I I wanted to ask you very quickly. What oh, I've got some... one. Hang on. I've got. Oh a. sure.
1: The car takes off into flight in the end of Greece, and the bugs have wings by the end of bug.
0: That's legal. true. That's very true. <laughs> Never thought of that before, but I'm, now I'm never going to watch Bug or Grease in, in the same way again. <laughs> it's funny. It's great. Um, I was going to ask you, uh, what are a few of your favorite stories that you've uncovered while doing your research? Because I'm sure you do come across some from time to time.
1: Oh, my God. There's a lot. Yeah. Um, to be honest, uh, God, lots. Um some sort of surprising ones where I was like, oh my god, that's so amazing. Um, okay, so doing the, actually, sticking to Greece, speaking about Greece, uh, I, mm-hmm. when I did the 70s musicals book. Um, I obviously covered uh, Pete's Dragon. Oh, yeah. and And obviously covered Greece. And I remember the connective, when I was doing Cujo, I was like, oh. The producer on Greece is the same producer as Cujo. So let me try and see if I can find him. So I spoke to Barry Pearl, who played Duty in Greece, who is a, mm-hmm. a legend, so lovely, amazing guy, um, and so generous. All these people that I've interviewed in the last 15 years, seriously, have been incredibly generous and giving. I'll get to more examples, more recent examples in a second. But he said to me, No, I don't keep in contact with the producer, but. I'm good friends with Gary Morgan. I'm I'm like, okay, Gary Morgan, name rings a bell, but who is he? And he goes, he played Cujo. And I go, what? And he goes, yep, (laughs) he was the guy in the dog suit, and he was in Pete's Dragon. So he was one of the sons of Shelley Winters in Pete's Dragon, um, the Grogan uh, family. And I was like, oh, Jesus. So that was amazing. So that kind of weird connection from Greece to Pete's Dragon to Cujo. And so when I got on the phone to Gary Morgan, he had incredible stories about working on that film and, you know, getting into the mind frame of doing this dog role and, um, you know, keeping the body sort of, you know, uh, dog-like, you know, having shoulders in and, um, you know, doing all this these stunt work, this stunt work. And he was on set throughout the whole thing, you know. Everyone else really was in there for their moment, but he was there all the time. Um, and just all those stories from him, that was incredible. Um Alan Heim, the amazing editor, talking about mm-hmm. all that jazz, um, just how freaking intense that shoot sounded and how people were dying on set and having heart attacks and how full-on it was and how um, intense someone like Bob Fossey was and just and how much of a genius, obviously, as well. I think that goes hand in hand. <laughs> but that kind of thing was amazing. Uh, oh, look, it, it, it's endless. It's incredible. And also finding out really sweet things like um, Leslie um, Ann Warren talking about when she did The Muppet Show, um, she thought it was kind of like her own um, version of Lily, the Leslie Caron musical, the fantasy musical with, with Leslie Caron and the puppets, if you remember that wonderful mm-hmm. film. And she was like, it was like my own Lily, which she grew up loving. I love that stuff, which is really sweet. Um, and, you know, all the, the tidbits about casting, you know, doing the Christine book, not knowing that William Forsyth was going to be the lead bully at one point. Um, you know, all that kind of stuff you eat up as a film fan. You're like, wow, that's really cool. Um, Barbara Turner, the late screenwriter, who her draft of the Cujo script and finding out through Peter Medak, the originally assigned director, what the opening was going to be for Cujo, which is very different. It was going to be much more gothic and much more, um, obviously, a supernatural bent with Cujo being a reincarnation rather than just a rabid dog. Just all this stuff. Uh, you know astounds me always and it's like it's so it's amazing getting this info and having this kind of i don't know just unearthing it it's really lovely one thing i'm very very proud of actually which i i remember sharing on facebook and everyone was you know liking it (laughs) whatever Mm -hmm. but it was um peter medak had only seen the film of he was he was fired from kujo and he had only ever seen the movie once, and it was the night before I interviewed him. He said to me on the interview, "Because I should watch the, I watched the movie, because I knew you were going to talk to me about it, and I really loved it." And he said, "Please tell Lewis Teague that he did an incredible job, and he did. Lewis Teague's work on that is just flawless, the perfect. Oh character. yeah. And he also said, please tell Dee Wallace that she was just flawless, and her performance in that is superb. It's Oscar worthy. She should have been nominated." Um and so I told those two and this kind of strange 35-odd-year-old, you know, uh, you know, I, you want to call it a grudge, I don't know, had been, you know, smoothed over and everything. was It was just like re- reuniting people um, via art, like, you know, that, this film Cujo is so brilliant that it can just tie up all these loose ends and put, you know... Um, uh, insecurities or any kind of resentment to rest. Um, so Peter Medak watching it and saying how wonderful it was and how great it was was such an important thing because it was, he was really hurt by being let go from Cujo. Um, he told me that he had walked out on many projects, film, major films, one involving Sean Connery, one involving Barbara Streisand. He walked out on these projects, major ones. But when he was fired from Cujo, it really hurt. So to have him love the film and let Lewis Teague and D Wallace know that they were amazing, and what they did was amazing, it was amazing, and just to have that, you know, being that kind of message guy. <laughs> so, yeah, all that stuff, it's just great. Uh, finding out stuff about the howling, because that's a film I absolutely adore as well. You mentioned yes. King Kong being a formative film for you. I think the howling was absolutely one for me. Uh, then just finding out about things like, you know, they, they had the idea of um, using real wolves and they went to this guy um, uh, who had a wolf ranch and they were like, we, okay, we can't use wolves. You can't really train wolves. Um, and then finding out that that same guy worked on day of the animals, which is one of my other favorites and just all that stuff. So I love the connective thing as well. I think that's really cool. Um, just all that stuff. All, there's so many stories, so many great stories. Um, you know, and even the stuff that we got for cinemaniacs for uh, the video intros. You know, Peter Bogdanovich talking about Mask and how Dorothy Stratton, his you know late lover, was obsessed with the Elephant Man, and she was the inspiration for him to do a film about this boy with deformity. Because mm-hmm. I love his quote where he said that she told him, "When you're very beautiful, everyone stares at you, and when you're very ugly, everyone stares at you." And it's, it's that's just amazing, so profound. Which yes. Goes back to, You know movie monster stuff um and all all that stuff and then you know elizabeth shepherd the gorgeous english actress talking about um the raven you know in damien omen 2 and how they were rigged and how they were trained and how they were like you know amazingly talented ravens and all the animal stuff i love all that like bruce davison and sondra Mm -hmm. lock talking about the rats and willard and how they had their own trailers, and their air conditioning was just right, and they had the best vegetables, and mo DeSesso as a trainer, and oh, I just love it every sort of story I get it's just it's just awesome, you know, and I hope people love hearing them as well, you know I think it's it's just so i don't know it's 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 something that I just celebrate all the time, and also like you know everything that's you know, it could be considered minor, but to me, it's just so magical. Like, for instance, Julie Cobb telling me that when they did Salem's Lot, James Mason would they'd be in a hotel during the shoot, and James Mason would, um, would jump on the piano, and they'd all have sing-alongs. You know, the cast of Salem's Lot doing show tunes. Like, seriously, <laughs> that is brilliant. I think it's just it's just it's brilliant, and I think. The wonderful thing about artists that, you know, that I've talked to, like actors and actresses and dancers and stunt people and directors and writers, they love everything. It is... It's, it's, I just wish fans knew that more because it's just really nice hearing someone associated with horror movies talking about how much they love westerns and musicals as well and how much... You, and when you hear someone talking about musical who you know, primarily works on musicals, how they just love horror... You know, it's it's just awesome. I think that's really cool. And I've always thought that, you know, uh, all film should be loved and, and matters. And I think these stories sort of, you know, kind of celebrate and tribute that.
0: Yeah, very true. Very, very true. Um, I was also curious about what some of your dream projects might be uh, as far as things you'd like to see being issued, by some of these labels and you're maybe being involved in, if there was something that you're just really dying to? to.
1: Yeah, um, there's a fair few. One that I keep going on about is Godspell. um, That had a really basic release through Columbia, just a DVD. It it desperately needs a beautiful Blu-ray release because that cinematography is outstanding. I don't know why it wasn't up for an Oscar in 73 uh, because the cinematography in that film is just, outstanding and what an amazing achievement in mm-hmm. New York City um, but that would be a dream job plus I know a lot of people from it um, that I can get involved Edgar Lansbury who produced it obviously the younger brother of Angela um, uh, Robin Lamont um, Gilda McCormack who's been amazing she did a great stuff she did great um, stuff for me for Godspell as well as Silent Night Deadly Nights um, but yeah, all these people involved with that film, I could get, I'd love to do a commentary, I'd love to do the essay, um, it'd be lovely to see the original poster art, um, God, who's the artist? Ansel, maybe? But that really gorgeous, it looks like a Struzen a little bit, but I don't think it is a Struzen Anyway, that to be on the cover, but that would be a dream job, absolutely. I'd also love to sort of pepper it with, you know, little featurettes on clowns in film or stuff like that. Um, yeah. Other dream titles, my God, there's so many. I think, but there's also films that haven't had releases yet, like In the Shadow of the Kilimanjaro, the Killer Baboon film.
0: Yeah, Um right. yeah.
1: Savage Harvest, which is a lion movie with um, uh, Tom Skerritt and Mamas um, and Puppas, uh Michelle Phillips.
0: Yeah, I remember uh, that one.
1: God, There's so many, like there's heaps. But yeah, all of them would be dream jobs. There's, uh, you know, I really wanted to get something like Raggedy Ann and Andy, the musical adventure, out, um, which needs to have a release because that's a great film with the Joe Raposo songs and Dee Dee Conn could do a commentary because she's just a legend. We love her. But there's heaps yes. of stuff. Um, also, speaking of projects, I'd really love to do a documentary. I'm, I'm kind of, um, it's very embryonic at the moment, but just at the cusp of talking to someone about that because it would be really cool to do a doco on something that might be more of an overview of something. But, yeah, I don't want to sort of jinx it by talking about it. But, yeah, look, there's a lot of projects. I'm going to keep going. (laughs) Um, I think I'm going to not do a monograph for a while. I think that will probably be something I won't be doing for a while. But the next project I'm doing, which I'm working on in the midst of, which I'm not sure if you know about, but is the um, Very Special Episodes book. Yes. So a whole book with a bunch of incredibly talented writers, um, some very seasoned and some first-time writers, actually, because I love, you know, everyone needs to get their start. Um, And it's going to be this huge book made up primarily of essays all about, and interviews, all about very special episodes. So if you think of all the shows, the sitcoms, Americans, I'm sticking to American sitcoms, Um, where they sometimes got serious, where they tackled the big issues like rape or um, abortion or Mm -hmm. drug addiction or racism or homelessness, blah, blah, blah. Um, And it's really shaping up. Like some of these essays I'm getting are just outstanding. Um, uh, I'm writing the core of them, but the ones I'm getting are just fantastic. So many great writers. But, yeah, that's fun. And then also... um, yeah, a recent example of how people are so generous, Adrienne Barbeau did a great interview for me for Maud. She was, of course, Be Arthur's daughter on that show, uh-huh. playing Carol. And she set me up with interviews with um, the writer from one of the writers from The Golden Girls and one of the writers from uh, Maud. So that was really lovely of her because it'd be nice to hear the, author, the writers talking about it. But yeah, that kind of thing um, is something that's in process and also working on. Um, the book on Carrie, which is only going... It's not going to have any critical writing. I think everyone under the sun has written critical stuff on that. Um, So it's just going to be quotes from everyone involved. So I've got most of the people involved. Ryan Clark, another legend, he was a collaborator on that. And Manoa Bowman is providing all these incredible photos, beautiful photos, straight from the negatives, um, most of which are never before seen. So that's going to be fun as well. So yeah, there's projects coming up, but yeah, as far as dream projects, yeah, of
0: course. Be <laughs> I mean, we also want to tell people about your upcoming Christine and the Howling books. I think they're coming next month, right? I believe. Yeah, if I'm correct.
1: I hope. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, um, it's been a long haul with the, the Howling. But it'll be worth it. Um, and it looks gorgeous. And uh, Centipede Press, uh, amazing. Once again, I'm very lucky, very blessed. Uh, I've got a great publisher there. And I've seen the galleys and I looked at it and it looks really beautiful. Like, it's full colour. It's, um, oh, it's, it's a really good-looking book and I'm very proud of it. So that'll be out soon. Um, I think they just went to print on Monday. Oh, <laughs> Sorry, great. you know, I, I mean, I, I finished that book Geez, <sighs> I reckon two, no, definitely a year ago. Um, but I started that um, before I adopted my dog, <laughs> and he's three now, <laughs> so it's been a while now. So he, yeah, so that, that's been a long-going book. So, yeah, once it's out, everyone will be happy. I think, I hope, I hope. Um, and also Christine, which I feel was like it, it's interesting because it mirrors the actual production of the film from all my interviews. It was such a smooth ride. That film was a real smooth ride. John Carpenter told me that it was, you know, a real smooth um, production, and everyone else did the same. Um, and that book, writing that book, was the same thing. It was incredibly, incredibly smooth. Um, and I feel like that only really took a year and a half. Um, I just sort of dived in and got all the interviews and just, you know, um, it wasn't as long a process as Cujo or The Howling. But, yeah, I think everyone will enjoy that as well, hopefully as well. There's some great photos. I'm very lucky, very blessed to have um, Kim Gottlieb Walker um, submit some photos. She was the on-set photographer for Christine and she's an amazing, an amazing artist. Um, and I've interviewed pretty much, you know, everyone who wanted to be interviewed, so... Um, John Carpenter is in there, and Alexandra Paul and Keith Gordon, um, uh, Bill Phillips, the screenwriter, who gives incredible insights. I feel like his insight in the in the script um, and what he writes about the script is just the best. It's really, 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 really in- uh, incredible and insightful, and just the detailing of how he sort of tributes different aspects of the idea of a killer car movie, and then you know compares it to it being a a very, very rich, um, uh, you know, complicated film about romance and relationships and friendship tested, etc. It's just amazing, really cool stuff. Um, the cinematographer, Donald M. Morgan's in there, Ray Orbega- Roy Orbega- Arbogast, sorry, um, the special effects guy who I'm sure you know of. He worked on Jaws yeah. and stuff. So all, all those, yeah, it's going to be good. It'll be fun. And it's the same sort of setup as Cujo, um, and so is The Howling Book. So scene-by-scene analysis, and then um, huge quotes from uh, the interviewees.
0: Oh, great. That sounds exciting, and I am really, really uh, just can't wait to get my hands on both of those, to tell you the truth. So I'm really yeah, really and then also, forward.
1: sorry, I've got a, a no. uh, edited a journal, edited a journal, and contributed to a journal all about um, scarecrows in movies and TV, which is going to be fun as well. And that's just printed. I just got the email confirmation, so those books will be delivered to me now. But and then we'll set up an Amazon account for everyone in the world to buy it because at the moment it's only um, obviously here in Australia. But, um, yeah, that's, that's gorgeous, and Darren Kotz- um, who's on the Cinemaniacs board, does a fantastic job at the design and layout. Um, I don't know if you've noticed any of the Cinemaniacs' art and all the graphics, but that's all him. He does all the campaign work, all the design work, all the poster art, all of it, and he does a beautiful job, and his work on this journal is just outstanding. And we've sourced all these beautiful photos. And Norman Cabrera, the special effects artist on *Scarecrows*, that 88 horror film, he contributed some amazing never-before-seen photos from that film. Um, we've, we, we are going to the gamut of all *Scarecrows*, So we go, uh, you know, the Buster Keaton Short, the Scarecrow, to The Wiz, to Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, to every incarnation of The Wizard of Oz, um, to um, Night of the Scarecrow, the Jeff Burr film, to all the modern Scarecrow horror films that I've never seen and don't want to (laughs) because they look awful. But uh, everything's in there, and I've got a bunch of excellent writers on board for that as well. So
0: that's going to be a good one. That's exciting, just like the others. Yeah, Yeah, that all sounds good, yeah. And and, um, do I have this right? I think you've started a podcast, The Cinemaniacs.
1: That's right, yeah, 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 yeah. So what my podcast is, is I talk to a star about one of their films. And then they choose a film that is similar to the film, whether it's got a connection by genre or um, uh, someone's involved with it as well, or that kind of thing. And then they talk about that. So they, we talk about two films primarily, but then, you know, because it's classically Gambit style, it goes on tangents. And it's great. And the first episode was with Ritania Alda, who I love. She's just amazing and she's such a oh, sweetheart. Yeah. And, such a generous, generous spirit, and she talked about Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, and then she talked about her love for westerns, and one of her favourites being *Hondo*, the John Wayne, Geraldine Page film. And the second episode was Robert Bingham, um, who was Caiaphas in Norman Jewison's *Jesus Christ Superstar*, and he talks about that, um, also his work on the, the production of *Hair* that he did before it, and just, oh, just amazing storytellers and so giving with their time, and yeah, um, hopefully up next will be Robert Forster um, locking him in. yeah, yeah,
0: I was going to say, that's terrific, I'm a huge, huge fan of Alligator, I know you did a piece on that for Fangoria at one point, and that was just, that's a terrific, terrific movie, that deserves, again, another one we're talking about that's sadly missing on video, it's out of print on DVD, and and there's no, um, it's it's hard to get on Blu-ray. I think there's a Blu-ray overseas region B or something, but um, it's it's that's another one. So yeah, ask him yeah, lots I of alligator all those, questions.
1: <laughs> yeah, one of those. I want all the deleted scenes. That would be amazing.
0: Oh, I know. Yes, absolutely. That would be. That and would, also, yeah. it would
1: have been great if um, um, what do you call it? The opening scene from Cat's Eye was released on the Blu-ray because. That's amazing. I don't know if, you've ever, if you know about that, but it involves Peyton um, who, of course, you know, made a splash playing Evita, Eva Peron in the first production of *Evita*. But she's mm-hmm. in *Cat's Eye*. The start of it, she's the owner of the cat, I think, and she's sort of wielding a gun. And there's some stills of her looking crazy. But Louis Teague has the footage, I believe. But it wasn't. It was the release of it on Blu-ray came out sort of after I knew about this. But that would have been an amazing extra. Um, So speaking of, you know, Alligator, because I'm I'm sure... Because I know that Lewis doesn't have the stuff from Alligator or the um, extra footage from Alligator, the extras, the um, deleted stuff, because that would be cool to see.